going to refer to Hebrews 11 later on where <clears throat> it's the list of people who were not honored for their faith. Abraham did this and Moses did that and other people were cut in half and fed to the lions. And I think we might add a little bit this morning, those AIC folks braved the rain and came to church. It was such a good deal of you, as I saw you all standing there with your umbrellas in that store next door, not selling anything, buying anything, just waiting for the rain to go down. You did good, and I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad that I'm here too. Last week, remember, we talked about giants facing them, embracing them, And we talked about uh, what it is, at say, my stage of life when people ask me, no longer what do I do, but what did I do? And uh, that takes some thinking about as you refer back. And the danger is to exaggerate and to add to what it is. You see that in um, a CV or resume, whatever you call it here, uh, when you open it up and you're looking for someone to employ They seem to have done everything and done it well and done it with excellence. And then when you meet them, you wonder if we're talking about the same person. So today I'm going to talk about boasting. And it's not a a word that we use much in Christian circles. But I want to just examine our hearts as I've been examining mine to see if I do boast, what do I boast about? And do I boast at all or should I boast uh, at all? 2 Thessalonians, the scripture reading, uh, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 there, Paul is writing to these people, and he says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith, in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Let's pray for a minute. Lord, we've been singing of your love, attributing glory to you in the highest, thanking you for your great sacrifice of sending your Son to be among us and to die for us, uh, to give us resurrection life, and for your Holy Spirit who dwells within us and empowers us as we seek to minister in your grace. So as we look at this portion of your word, may the word live. May we speak only of the word and of you, Lord, with honor and with integrity. And may you examine our hearts to see what we know is inside and those things that you're pleased with, those things you'd like us to change. So change our hearts, Lord, and make us respond to the word today uh, as we want to follow you and live our lives before others so that the beauty of Jesus in some way might be seen in us. This is our prayer we offer in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's writing this letter to uh, a youngest church in Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, depending where you're from. Uh, It's a city that's an unusual one. reminds me of some other cities I know. Uh, It's on the edge, as it were, of the Roman influence, part of Caesar's kingdom, just a little bit out on the edge, and it's uh, known for its multiculturalism, known for its busyness, its trade, and uh, it's just far enough away from the daily uh, observance of the Caesar to get away with a few things that other places can't get away with. Oh, it would be from Rome to Thessalonica, perhaps about the distance from maybe Hong Kong to Beijing, just to get a feel for it. And there it is out there, and it's doing its own thing largely. 
And into this multicultural mix come Paul and Silas with passion to preach the gospel. And they preach, and we're told many came to Christ. In Acts chapter 17 it is, it tells us that when they preached, many Greeks, many women, and many Jews came to the Lord. And it's that word Jews that got Paul and Silas into trouble. The priests did not like someone coming onto their turf. They did not like the message that was being preached, nor did they like the response that the people were making. And so they got together, as priests do in that day, and they hired some, we would call them thugs, and they paid them some money to go to Jason's house, where Paul was staying, and roughen up a little, just make them know how it works here in this city where you don't come from, and as a visitor you ought to behave the way we tell you to. Well, when they get there, Paul and Silas had moved on. So having had the money paid to them, they thought they should do something. They roughed up Jason and his friends. And in fact, it says they falsely accused them. And they went worse than that. They accused Jason of treason against uh, the emperor. And of course, that is a capital punishment penalty. And so there's quite a lot has to happen for the Christians to as it were, get out of jail, not free, but to get back to some normality. Paul is watching this from a distance, which I think is a wise thing to do. And he's seeing what they are responding to, how they are responding, and so that causes him to write this letter. The church is not having it easy. And Paul has commending them now, and he uses this word boasting. Unusual word, we don't talk about it so much now. The Bible has quite a lot to say about it, and depending on your translation, you could get up to as many as 50 times mentioned in the scriptures of boasting. Psalm 44, verse 8. In God we make our boast all day long, and we'll praise him and his name forever. That's a good one. And then Psalm 34, glorify the Lord with me and exult, or some translations use the word, or boast about his name together. And we've been singing of that. Some of the songs that were chosen today were to boast about God's glory, how great the Father's love we boast about beyond all measure that he would send his son to die for us and make us his, turn us from wretches into his treasure, boasting about our God. Those are good ways to boast, but there are other boasting situations mentioned too. Psalm 27, boast not about your tomorrow, for you don't know what the next day will bring. That's a good one. We don't know what the next day will bring. I talked about last week, I don't know what tomorrow will bring or today will bring. Thankfully, God is not surprised. And then Psalm 10.3, in his arrogance, the wicked man boasts of the cravings of his heart. There's some good wisdom ones, some Chinese potential proverbs here. First Kings, one who puts on his armour, should not boast like the one who's taking his armour off. And we get a lot of that today. The political world is full of boasting as you put your armour on, or if you vote me in, I will do this. But we should not listen to that, but rather listen to the one who's coming, as it were, off the battlefield, who's coming in and they're performed, and we see what they have done. Boast not when you're putting your armour on, my friend, but rather boast about the one who comes and takes it off. Well, uh, Jill and I do a bit of travelling, and uh, we're asked regularly, by the way, 
It's very easy to make a change, isn't it, and not to boast or to boast about the right things. But I've learned in life something. It's very easy to make a decision on a major situation, but it's very hard to implement it. I'm going to exercise more. The doctor says, your, your blood's hardly moving. Get, get on the exercise machine. And I go back and I announce, I'm going to exercise more. I've made the decision. Well, that was easy until tomorrow comes. And I'm mentioned, why aren't you on the machine? Or I'm going to diet and get rid of all the fancy food that I've eaten in China over the last six weeks in there, everything. Some, some of it, I don't know what it is, but it was wonderful. And the pounds have gone on, or the kilograms perhaps. And so it is announced for me on this occasion that you will lose weight. And we start tomorrow. And tomorrow we're saying, where's the food? It's very hard to implement it, very easy to make the decision. And I notice that in the Christian world too. I can get moved by a, a, an eloquent speaker and the Spirit of God touches my heart and I'm going to change, Lord. I'm going to put time for you like I've never put before. I'm going to do this, that, and everything that you want me to do starting tomorrow. And uh, for some reason, the, the, the alarm doesn't go off. And so it's very hard to implement some of those major decisions. So as I said, uh, we travel around a bit and, and one of the things that you, you get asked, you come back from Hong Kong and there are people out there who know you and there are people out here who in former days have lived among you and uh, you know some of them. And they'll say, you went to AIC? We did. And what did you find? Now what are we going to say? What can we say to people about you uh, because they get specific. Do you remember this person? Yes, we do. We know that person. What about this and that? How's that pastor doing? And a lot of questions about you from friends who know you, and what do we say? Can we boast about what God is doing among you? Can we come back to, to those people and say, that, that AIC crowd, you won't believe what's going on there. You won't believe what God is doing. What are we going to say? Can we say, yes, the faith that we see in AIC is growing more and more, and the love every one of them, every one of them has for everyone else. I know you love one another because you hear that chatter going on, but can it be said of you that every one of you loves everyone else more and more as the days go by, and you persevere and retain your faith through trials? Not much boasting in the scripture, really, of that nature. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11 comes close when he talks about the great men and women of faith and God's reactions to them. God's not ashamed to be called their God. That's, that's a good statement to have. These were all commended by God. Perhaps he, in a sense, boasted about them for their faith. And yet none of them received what had been promised. You know... Um, I remember that from being a child and we went to the mall and the man in the big red suit uh, lured me to sit on his knee and said, what do you want for Christmas? And I told him what I wanted for Christmas. And so on Christmas morning I looked hopefully to where the gifts were and he'd let me down. He hadn't given me what he'd promised. He hadn't told my mother or father about the promise, but he had let me down. Well, how would it be if God promised you something and he never delivered it, would your faith stand true because you trusted in God, because he's God, not before 
what he gives to you. Uh, Boasting seems to be prevalent among churches, and particularly churches in the West today, and uh, it bothers me a little. You open up the Christian websites or the Christian magazines and you read a lot about some of the churches that are available and the ministries that they're doing and what they say about themselves. You could be uh, under under the cloak of boasting you think some of it is going on. There's strong adjectives to highlight the number of books someone has written and how many copies were sold. This uh, praise for worship teams from certain churches whose music has become popular on social media. There are invitations, many invitations, to come to our church because we host meaningful seminars led by well-known celebrities. And what's better, it's all done in the confines of our beautiful facility that has been designed especially for your comfort and convenience. And you get a three-ring binder that you take home deciding to look at every day but putting it up on the shelf until you actually get around to it. We boast. Let's not, for, not pretend, not, not us, because we're perfect, but the other churches, they boast. All of these things are legitimate and potentially helpful, but none of them seem to have been qualified to be included in the New Testament. There's not much talk about that, and I wonder why. Luke when writing his account of the Acts of the Apostles, he tells us the believers were devoted to the Word of God, to fellowship uh, together, breaking of bread and praying together. They didn't charge money for certain things, but gave away where people had need. Worshipping and praising God was what they did best, and the Lord added new believers to them every day. This is Luke writing this. Now, Luke's a doctor. And if you know anything about doctors, they are not known for their eloquent and flowery speech when discussing your illness. They just stick to the facts. In fact, you have to extract facts out of most doctors that I'm aware of. Uh, And actually, when he started writing the book of the Acts of the Apostles, he tells us, I'm not writing anything down until I've examined it for its truth, its veracity. And the word he uses, examine, there is the word that we get the word autopsy from. So an autopsy is a very detailed and significant inspection of the cause of death of a body. So Luke is saying, you're not going to get any adjectives here, fancy adjectives. You're going to get the facts and only the facts as I write them down. And so maybe that could be a good example for us when talking about our own achievements and those of others. So you want to say to me, well, what do you say about AIC when you meet these people uh, who know us and care about us and want to report? Well, I'm happy to tell you it's not hard to talk about you because I think you're a welcoming church. You come in the door and you're welcomed. You have a lot of welcoming time afterwards. I have one thing against you because God said that to all of the churches, didn't I? This thing I have against you. When the benediction says amen, everybody races up and they're taking chairs and stacking them up and you get pushed out of the way and they get over there and that's good. But I want to suggest that squeezes the fellowship time when uh, it gives people who don't want to be seen opportunity to get out the door and it seems that it means people who know each other gather together 
and suddenly if you're a visitor, sometimes maybe you're caught standing here wondering what this is about and what comes next. You know, what's the next act if they've cleared this off? No, no, you, you're, you're a good church and we enjoy coming here and you've made us very welcome. You give the impression you're happy to be together. And uh, I've been to, I'm going to say, 20 to 30 international churches around the world and none of them sing anywhere near like you do. And even when the numbers are down, uh, the singing is good because you seem like you want to be here and you want to praise God. Most of you listen intently to the preacher and the others that don't are, are gracious enough to go to sleep so that they don't pretend that they're listening to the preacher. And it's normal to hear discussions about what has gone on in that time of fellowship afterwards. Let me say those aren't always true of churches that I've known and even been involved in. I say all this because I think the Lord is doing good things among you and uh, whatever's happening in your own personal life in the church, you're part of a congregation that I think that God is blessing and using. You have good leadership, strong leadership, and you have good ministry leaders and good variety of ministries uh, that are focused on God's word. And I don't see this personal boasting or inflating anything that you do. I thought of Moses' words to the people. They could be yours. The Lord is blessing and keeping you. He is making his face to shine on you and be gracious. He has turned his face towards you in order to give you peace. And if that's, as I see it, true about you as a church, then God would want that to be true of you as individuals also. And in fact, you'd say it's hardly likely to be true of a church if it's not true of the individuals that make up the community. But having done all that, I'm realistic enough to know that among us this morning, there are some who are not in a mood to boast about the church and maybe not even in a mood to boast about God to the extent that I've been implying. The week that was has left little or nothing for you to get excited about, and the week ahead, and maybe life ahead, doesn't promise anything that is likely to change that point of view. The problem with the future, of course, is that it's unseen and unknown. If we could just know the future, we could make our plans accordingly, but the future comes at us and we don't know about it. And this unknownness or this unseenness can be thought about often and especially when it's dark or we are alone and it can build up fear or anxiety in our life and it's hard to take that off. I know what I'm talking about and I have a sense that most of you know what I'm talking about. At times in your life when you know you shouldn't be anxious but you are, you know you shouldn't be fearful because it hasn't yet happened. But you still are. Uh, I grew up in churches, good churches, and one of the valuable outcomes back then, we sang out of a hymnal and we had a copy each and we sang out of it and we sang in parts because everything was four part, no minor keys. It was, that was what we knew and that is what we sang. And it's embedded. And if you wanted to have a quiz sometime on trivia, uh, I think of that book of about 900 hymns and you named a hymn, I think I could even tell you the number, which shows how my long-term memory is good and the short-term memory not so good. And I also like the modern music. It took a bit of getting used to some of these, these things, but I'm very okay with them, and I mentioned last week one that I really enjoy. I'm no longer a slave to fear, for I am a child of God. And the words of that, which are not new words, of course, but just placed in the way they are and sung, 
have been help, very helpful to me in the recent, recent years or the months that it's been around. Uh, I'm not afraid of fear. There's another one that came to me that's being sung a lot and it doesn't have particular relevance to everybody, but it did to me. And it's a, shall we say, a paraphrase of Jeremiah's, uh, God's word to Jeremiah or in Jeremiah. And the line says, From my mother's womb you have cared for me. From my mother's womb you have not only known me, but cared for me. And that's um, interesting to me, because if that's true, then it would seem that God cared for me more than my mother did. Because my birth certificate has a lot of, lot of lines to fill out, but only three words are put on it other than the date. And the first word is Elizabeth, which is the mother's name. The second word is 19, which was her age. And the third word is male, describing me. That's all there is. And it seemed that she wanted to be free of me. Now, later on, there's an adoption certificate that says five months later I was adopted. Uh, but these were the days just towards the end of the Second World War. And it did look as if the war was coming to an end. And soon the soldiers, the men we'd sent, would come home. And so there were many babies being put up for adoption to cover up or to be free of the things that had gone on while their husbands and boyfriends were overseas. And so the result of that was many children for adoption, not many people to adopt. Because when the men came home, they weren't interested in adopting someone else's child. They wanted to be part of producing their own. Few people. So God cared for me from my mother's womb. Well, he did because this couple came from a countryside town and uh, he had not been able to go to war for physical disabilities and they came and they adopted and they had choice. These days you get matching and psychological things. Back in those days, you just went into a room and said, choose one, and they chose me. God put his hand upon me. He did care for me. And so as we, I was growing up and as I learned about this, there was one of my favorite songs that we used to sing in church and we don't sing it anymore, but I sing it to myself. And it's a beautiful song. In loving kindness, Jesus came, my soul in mercy to reclaim. And from the depths of my mother's sin and shame, through grace he lifted me. Isn't that a beautiful? It doesn't have to have any story about adoption attached to it. I can say to you, in loving kindness, Jesus came to reclaim you. And he has. And it wasn't incidental or spasmodic. It was his choice you are chosen of God, you are valuable to God, and he's done that, and he wants to lift you high and lift you up. He lifted me from shades of night to plains of light, it goes on to say. And there's beautiful words there that have been helpful to me. So I'm no longer a slave to fear because not only am I a child of God, but I'm a child that God cares for. Now that's not the song of most people on earth today. John 8.34 tells us, those who sin are slaves to sin. Hebrews 2.15 indicates those who reject God live their lives in fear of death. But not us, not you and me. The writer to Hebrews tells us, through his death, our Lord has destroyed the devil who has the power of death. And so he, the Lord, is able to prevent us giving in to the temptations of fear that might surround death and other things, the unknown. I think back in Psalm 42, one of my favorite psalms, the uh, psalmist is trapped in fear and he likens himself to a deer that's looking for water. You might know that one. 
He's looking, the, the deer is searching for water. He's gone where it was and that's not there anymore and he doesn't know what to do. And the psalmist is the same. He was the, apparently a worship leader back in, uh, in the temple and he used to, I used to lead the people in worship, he said. I was in front of the throng. We marched in. But now I'm in Babylon. I'm away from where I should be. And so where's God? He attached God to the place that he'd been in and to the work or ministry that he was engaged in. He didn't realize that God isn't attached to those things. Remove those from his life and he's lost any sense. Now a few verses later, he gets perspective and he says, Ah, I get it. The waves and billows that are crashing over me are actually controlled by you, God. You control my circumstances. I can rest in him. I need to hear that from time to time. I need to know it's not where I go to find God. Or what do I do to attract his attention? Your presence, Lord, you are never leaving me or leaving me alone. You never turn from me. There's nowhere I can go to hide from your presence and there's nowhere, God, that you can go to hide from mine because you promised that you will be with me always and there's nothing I can do that you will not forgive. Did you know that? Uh, we sing out there in the children's story, my God is so big, so well, so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Well, I found something God cannot do. God cannot not forgive. Whatever you do, God will forget if you confess and come humbly before him. There's nothing that he will not forgive. I like a God like that. Some parents are pretty hard to please, but ultimately God our Father, he must forgive and cleanse us and restore us in a right relationship with him. You can be a slave no longer to whatever's troubling you. You are a child of God. And you can be like the psalmist. It's not attached to coming to church. It's not necessarily where you, be, where you are and what you're doing. It's just he's with us. The Lord is our shepherd wherever I go, David could say in 23. Ezekiel's another one, just quickly I want to refer to him. Uh, he was also a young priest starting out in ministry. And uh, I've seen them come out of seminary and Bible college. And they're ready to go, youth pastors, most of them. But uh, in his day, he was ready to go, and suddenly, before he's been placed in a church, his hand on his shoulder, and it's the Babylonians, and they're taking all the young, fit men across to their land to prepare what is going to be the refugee center for all of the rest of the Jews who are going to come over later on. Well, that's not what he went into. He was praised from his village because he was going into ministry. And now here he is, he says in Ezekiel 1, we were making paths that seemed alongside canals so horses could bring in the supplies or the people, whatever. And he said, at night we sat beside the river. And uh, the psalmist adds to that and says, and our captors taunted us. And they said, sing us a song of your homeland. Come on, you people. Filipinos are noted for singing. And where Filipinos come into our contact, we lived there for a short time, we say, let's sing a song because they sing. Well, the Babylonians were saying to these, uh, this, this Jewish priest, young man, sing us a song of your homeland. How can I sing a song of my homeland in this foreign land? And then the very next verse says, but I felt the hand of the Lord upon me. He was with him. And if you read through, that's a very strange book to read through, by the way. There's a lot of stuff goes on that's funny. But time and time again, I think about 10, 11 times, He's in the middle of a crisis and he says, 
but the hand of the Lord was upon me. So whatever you're facing today and whatever's worrying you about tomorrow, I can tell you, just don't, don't have to go anywhere. Sing a song because the hand of the Lord is upon you. He knows your situation. He's aware of it. He's not forgotten you. He's not away dealing with other people who are more important than you. God has everything ready for you to reveal and put into place according to his timetable. So that's what Ezekiel did. He felt a hand on him. It wasn't the hand of the captor anymore. He's not a slave. He's a child of God. Psalm 139.16 All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Is that a beautiful verse or not? All the days ordained for you and me were written in your book, God, before one of them came to be. So that means God has known the issues that would be mine in life and he has committed to be there for me in every one of them. And you can say the same. God is not caught by surprise and he is not running around wondering whether to gather the resources. It's all there. God has known those issues and he is committed to be there, but, but God has not committed to divert or change the circumstances that he knows will test me and hurt me and challenge me in some circumstances. Your details will be different from mine, but together our journeys uh, will, will endorse that truth, that he knows everything, he knows what will be there, he provides for us, but he does not promise to divert us from some of the hard things that are there. Now, I'm 73, provided a life full of happy experiences and associated memories. We were just talking this morning. Are we having a good time? Jill and I, we are having a good time. Life is good. Life has been good. Yet there's been some huge things that even still occasionally wake us up in the middle of the night and uh, cause some little bit of grief. But... The evidence of God's goodness is far over surpassed by some of the things uh, that have happened to us. I think in our modern world we tend to get into the view that the evidence of God's goodness is determined by how he reacts to our physical needs. And you hear that a lot more associated with people praying for healing. And if God is a good God, he'll heal that person of that. But if he's not, we're not so sure. And they'll go, why does God provide for this person and not for that person, say, in uh, education, in finances, in family issues? Why is my family the one that seems to be in the middle of troubles? We believe, we are tending to believe, that that's the way that God's goodness is determined. Well, I say we don't have to go far in Scripture to learn that God does some of his best compassionate work, not in removing people from the circumstances, but by visiting them in the circumstances. Joseph in prison would surely be one, favoured son of his father, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, uh, falsely accused in that slavery position, thrown into prison, forgotten by those who he was associated with in prison who promised that they would be his uh, spokesperson when he gets out. He's looking for God. I'm sure he's a man of God, deeply uh, a follower of God. Joseph would be looking for God and wait on, I hear a knock as it were on the prison wall, God's come to get me. But no, the scripture says God did not remove him, but God came to Joseph and comforted him in prison. I mean, God, you can do anything, just get him out of prison, but not the plan. 
if we go, we know now because we look back and see what the plan was even greater and uh, may not have been in God's way if, it had, if he had come and let him go. And so I would just say in my experience, the darkest nights have given him opportunity to speak deep into my soul and to assure me that his primary intent is to mold me more into his likeness and to remind me that my soul and spirit are more valuable than my physical body. We used to sing at our camps uh, when I was a teenager. Uh, after the meeting, uh, we would go off and sit around the fire and do what you do. And the one that really uh, was motivating to me in terms of uh, my commitment to God to go where whatever he wanted, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me, all his wondrous compassion and purity. O thou spirit divine, all my nature refine till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. And uh, it had a nice song, maybe helped touch my heart. But when I think about that, isn't that what God wants? That day by day we become more conformed to his image, that more and more the beauty of Jesus would be seen in us, that people would say when something's gone around in the office or the school or the neighborhood, how come you react differently? How come you're not like the rest of the people? How come is it? And we won't boast and say, because I'm special. We lift up the name of Jesus. And if we lift his name up, he said, I will gather others to me. So I say to you that our bodies are not as important as the world would tell us. They're important. Of course they are. Our bodies are the house of the Holy Spirit within us. Our bodies are how God has made us. And we need to honor and look after our body but um, it's not, that, not all that there is. Now, modern medicine has done some wonderful things in extending the life of our physical bodies. The beauty product people have made uh, uh, millions out of telling us how beautiful the body ought to be. The fitness ex- people, and forgive me if I have a little tension with fitness people, uh, they've told us you've got to have a fit body if you're going to be any valuable in this world. But as children of the living God, we are far more than a physical body. And if we could somehow just see that the body is really, the physical body is a temporary holding place of our eternal soul, maybe we can have a different perspective. When my physical body expires, you and I will be given a resurrection body like that of Jesus. Because who we are, our true person, lives whether our body does or not. So I'm not a fan of boasting about physical condition, of boasting about the efforts that are put into keeping the body uh, in tune with what the world would say are the important things. I'm grateful for the health I have. I'm grateful for the, for the way in which and the life that God has given me. And I want to boast, if I do, about God's care for me in that. And I've told the story, I'm not going to go over it again, but God has kept me and I thank God for life today. So I don't let the medical diagnosis define me. And I would ask you to do the same. You may have diabetes or a heart condition or something else, but that's not who we are. Our present condition is not our permanent condition. A medical prognosis is not necessarily prophetic in God's eyes. God will have the final say. 
And so for me, it comes back to that first hymn, From the depths of sin and shame, I can sing, Now on a higher plane I dwell, and with my soul I know all's well. I'm no longer a slave to fear, 99% of the time. I'm a child of God. And you can be too, because all your days are written in his book before they came to be. And so day by day, as it were, God is turning the page of your life and saying, here's what I've got. Here's what I've got for you and you today. Tomorrow, if I go ahead, God can say, I know what's coming. And he ought to know, she ought to know that I'm with her and with him. It's worked out. It's a plan that's going to be a beautiful plan in the end as they look back because it's going to bring me to the feet of Jesus. It's going to be bring me into his presence. And one day, as the prophet wrote, I'm going to walk on that highway. It's a holy highway made only the unclean can never walk on that highway. But every day it seems God sends out his angels to call some to fill up that highway and bring them home. And it says they go to Zion with singing. And uh, there's no more fear, there's no more sickness, there's no more sadness, there's no more dying. And when they get to the gate of the city, they're welcomed with a garland. If you go to Hawaii, or if you used to, you, you came off the plane, they put a garland of flowers over you and welcome. Aloha. When we get to heaven, it's going to be garden, a wreath of joy. Gladness and joy will be our song. And he will be there. I often wonder who's going to come and put that garland on us. I'd like to think it's maybe someone I know who's waiting for me, who's coming to get me. I'm not sure. But I know that he will be there. And in his presence there is the absence of everything that hurts us and makes us fearful here in this life. It's all gone. There is no more. And God wants us to start to live in the knowledge of that and in the understanding of that and in the reality of that. As we live here in this sinful world as it is, we can know no fear. We can know his presence because he cares for us and he loves us intensely. He loves you intensely. And this week, you can walk in the light of that knowledge and sing with joy about his goodness and his grace in your life. Let's pray. Father, uh, we pray that um, you would help us not to boast about anything of ourselves, uh, but we would boast of the glory of the Lord that we would magnify your name when asked, that we would speak well of your goodness. We would recall the things, the way you've led us this far, and our confidence that you will lead us. He's led us this far by his grace, we sing. He will lead us with joy to look on his face. Glory, glory to God. So may this day, despite the weather, despite the circumstances, despite all the things that would crowd in and make us fearful or concerned, the unknown and unseen, would we forget about that and fix our eyes on Jesus? Would we understand that your love is so great for us that you will never leave us? There's nothing that you will not forgive in our past that haunts us perhaps. So we commit this day and the rest of it and the week and the days that you give us with thanksgiving to our God for all your goodness. And we bring you our praise and our thanksgiving this morning in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.